It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education. Education for parents and providers who want the down low on the low down. to fit through my pelvis. Welcome back for another episode of the podcast. I think this is number seven. Go us. Uh, A reminder that my Radical Childbirth Education course, the next cohort begins the first week of March. We meet Sundays for two hours. For four weeks, you get all of the same information that you do in the live class plus Q&A period at the end of each class and a private Facebook group and a bunch of goodies to help you navigate the end of pregnancy and early postpartum. This is my second attempt at recording audio and video at the same time. Um, I just recorded 13 minutes of the podcast without the video rolling and had to start over. So here's your reminder that you don't have to wait until it's perfect or until you've got it all figured out. Um, You can just start. You can just start. It doesn't have to be exactly right. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have all the things in line. You can just start something. You, whoever, whatever you are and whatever you're doing in life, you have something that's important to offer. And if you're holding off on sharing it, let this be your encouragement to just do it. Uh, I started this podcast because three of my clients in a week's time told me that I should have a podcast. And it's something I'd been hearing for the last year, but really was pushing back against because I've done podcasts before. I've had a body image podcast. Kelsey, my daughter and I had a podcast. I love doing podcasts, but they're really time intensive in terms of editing. um, And they don't make, you know, they're not profit profitable really. So you have to look at it Um, unless you have a really big following as just really kind of a service, right? It's information you're being given or you are giving away. And that's the way I see it. I'm not going to gatekeep the information that I have about birth in the hospital because it should be something that everyone has access to. Really the truth, you're owed that much. So the class is at my website. It's the number 13moonsbirthwork.com. And let's get on with today's subject matter. We're talking about big babies. How big is too big? And how do I know the baby's too big? And what happens when a baby's too big? And why are our doctors always worried about babies being too big? And these are really, really good questions. So the first thing is, I always like to tell people, in my experience, your body does not create, build a baby that it can't birth most of the time. There are some exceptions to this. One of them is in the case of gestational diabetes or type 2 diabetes that's undiagnosed and untreated. Babies then put a lot of fat on and they put it on in their shoulders and they come out looking like kind of like linebackers. That's one possibility. And another way, another situation where I've seen babies that truly didn't fit is in when you have a teeny, teeny, tiny mom and a really, really, really big dad. So that makes sense, right? Perhaps you're making a baby in after its father. Um, and if you think about birth from like a historical evolutionary perspective, prior to the advent of 
travel, really, and people going places, teeny, teeny, tiny ladies and big, 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 giant guys wouldn't have been making babies together because our societies kind of look and are sized similar, right? Like certain cultures have larger people, certain cultures have smaller people. But again, it happens sometimes. Now, barring those two things, and when I say teeny tiny lady, big giant man, I mean teeny tiny big giant. I'm just not talking about an average size woman. I'm talking about somebody that's five feet tall or under and a dude that's, you know, big football player. Think, think football player, right? So those are kind of the two scenarios where babies truly might not fit through the pelvis. Most of the time, they fit. Not just because your body isn't going to build a baby that won't fit, but also because your pelvis is very flexible and your baby is very moldable. The baby's skull bones are designed to overlap so that their heads can be compressed through the birth canal, through into the pelvis, through the birth canal, and out. And that's why they sometimes come out looking a little coney-headed, right? That's the travel down the birth canal that did that. So those factors together really do um, are a recipe for success in terms of birth when you leave it alone. Here's the problem. Here's why we're worried about it. We're worried about it because larger babies are associated with a higher risk of shoulder dystocia. That's our main complication that physicians are concerned about. And here's the data for you. Here are the numbers, the most recent numbers. Dystocia occurs in about 1% of babies weighing less than 8 pounds, 8 ounces, or 3.9 kilos. That number jumps to 5 to 9% of babies weighing between 3.9 and 4.5 kilos, which is up to 9.9 pounds. 9 pounds, 9 ounces. Now, there are a couple of other less likely complications. One is perineal tearing um, and postpartum hemorrhage, but those are, are rare and hard to tell if they're related to the size of the baby. And I always like to add that I had an 11-pound baby at my house in my kitchen. And we had a dystocia. Um, I'm, I know why we had a dystocia. It's because of the position that I was pushing in. I was sort of semi-reclined and I had fallen asleep and then woke up and started pushing, like almost in my sleep. And I was a little bit um, kind of slumped. So I basically kind of tucked her into my pelvis that way. Now, I'll do my best to explain what a dystocia is visual you know visually with words but i'm also going to use my hands on the video so essentially the baby comes down your pelvis the head the baby's head rotates in the center of the pelvis it comes in one direction facing side to side it rotates in the center of the pelvis in the cavity and usually they're born with their faces looking towards your butt and then as they do what we call restitute they turn their head to the side usually your thigh and during this process, they're also kind of tucking and rolling their shoulder. They're kind of like corkscrewing themselves out. In the event that the baby's shoulder does not corkscrew down and make its way out, it can get stuck, it can get stuck on the front of the pubic bone. And what happens is, picture the baby is out, the head comes out, and now the shoulder is still behind that bone. And now we actually have more pressure on the shoulder, right? Because just the baby's head being outside of the vagina stretches the neck way, way, way out. And now you've got pressure on the shoulder, which makes it more difficult even to release that shoulder to get it to turn the right way. Most of the time, 
The vast majority of the time, the answer to this problem is simply a position change on the mother's part. And in an unmedicated physiological birth, the mother will naturally assume the best position for her baby at that point. Should the baby become stuck and you let her move, she will almost invariably move a leg up or down or do whatever she needs in order for the baby to make that turn to get out on her own without direction because innately she knows inside what's going on, right? She knows, oh, the baby's stuck. I need to do something. Mm, I probably need to lift this leg or turn this way or, or whatever. And they do. And I did that. Um, and my baby still needed some help. And that's where your midwife's skilled hands come in. And she put her hand inside and helped my baby turn the shoulder. Now, the problem for physicians and the reason that they're so concerned about big babies is because when a shoulder dystocia happens, there is a potential for an injury to the brachial plexus, which is the nerve that runs down the side of your head and neck and innervates whatever arm, the left or right arm. If you pull on a baby's head while the baby's being born and you actually try to like pull the shoulder out, imagine just trying to like force it out, it, it can either damage or in some cases even completely sever that nerve and create permanent paralysis on that side. And this is the most common reason that obstetricians are sued. So I don't need to tell you that it makes sense that they're fearful of it because if it happens, they get sued a lot. Um, I've been on three of these cases, sat in as a nurse, um, one that was warranted, two that probably really weren't. Um, and this for me is really hard territory because if you think about it, one of the key factors in releasing a dystocia is the ability to move and change positions so that you can change the angle of the pelvis and help the baby rotate or pull that shoulder in. If you have an epidural and you are laying on your back supine, you are already in an unfavorable position for birth because you're working against gravity. Your pelvic floor is essentially paralyzed. The muscles of the pelvic floor, which kind of cradle the baby's head as the baby is being born, are not doing their job because they are not functioning like they should. And you can't feel where your baby is to make an adjustment because you're numb and you can't move your body to get up. So at that point, you are reliant 100% on the people in the room to get that shoulder released. And they're going to do a number of position changes in order to do that. Usually the first thing we do is put your legs way, way, way back. That's called McRoberts. Legs go way, way, way back and way, way, way open. And then we can do something called super pubic pressure where we press above the pubic bone to kind of push the baby's shoulder down. But in an unmedicated physiological upright birth, those interventions aren't usually needed because the mother can do the job of releasing the baby. In my case, my midwife had been a midwife for 40 years and our dystocia was the second one she'd ever seen that was like a true, a true dystocia, a truly stuck baby. And she was 11 pounds. So maybe that's why she was stuck, but her brother was 10 and a half pounds and didn't get stuck. So being big in and of itself is not the only factor, right? It's not the only thing to consider. The other thing is that when physicians are afraid and they're likely to try to induce your labor out of fear that your baby's going to be big, there's a few factors to consider here. And the first one is 
that ultrasounds can be wrong by about 15%. And um, most of the time, they're wrong in the positive direction. They're overestimating the size of the baby rather than underestimating the size of the baby. There was a study done, um, there's a Cochrane review, which I will link, that shows that labor before induced before 40 weeks for a suspected big baby resulted in a slightly lower risk of shoulder dystocia, but a much higher risk of perineal tearing. The reason for this, I believe, is as we've discussed when we talked about physiological birth, at the end of pregnancy, our levels of relaxin in our body, which is the hormone that helps our joints kind of become loose and our skin become elastic, they rise at the end of pregnancy significantly. So that's a part of the design, right? That's part of the design. Being having skin that is stretchy and can and having uh, bones that are loose enough to accommodate a baby. So this is one of the reasons why induction is not is not evidence based. The World Health Organization and the NICE guidelines, which are in the UK, not here, both state that induction of labor should not be done simply because a baby is big. That is not enough of a reason. And secondarily, our estimates of fetal weight are often so far off that uh, we're getting false results, right? Um, clinical assessment from the outside, palpating measuring also is flawed. It's right about maybe 50% of the time. And there was actually a study done that showed that women themselves are actually better at predicting their baby's weight than ultrasounds are, which I think is fascinating. Um, there was a study done in 2023, which explored women's experiences of this and showed that it has really negative impacts on the pregnant person when you tell them their baby's too big, right? Because now they're afraid. Another thing to consider is just the care provider bringing fear to the room as well. Because if the care provider is afraid of a large baby and afraid of a potential lawsuit, and you have, let's say, insisted on not being induced and now you're full term, they're bringing their pheromone of fear into your delivery room. And I've seen this before, and it's really, really evident when you have a physician filling in or, you know, on call and another, your physician is gone. Because statistically, what has been shown is that if you do, if you know your physician and you have a good relationship with your physician, you are less likely to file a lawsuit against them, which means you are more likely to file a lawsuit against someone you just met, right? Um, that's just the nature of human beings. So those on-call doctors often come into the room even more fearful than your own physician would because it is in the back of their mind and they are reading your chart. Oh, this is a, a suspected large baby. What if it's too big? What if we have a shoulder dystocia? And I've seen these doctors and they come in and they're like visibly sweating. They're very clearly in distress. And on one hand, I'm like, chill out, bro or ma'am or whatever. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, okay, I kind of get why you're scared because you are seeing a lot of this. What's really fascinating about this is you see this a lot less in home births for the reasons previously stated. When you have an upright physiological birth, mom is moving and listening to her body and her baby, 
and pushing only when she feels the urge to push, not directed, then our outcomes are much less likely. We're much less likely to have dystocia. And in the event we do have a dystocia, it's handled quite differently. The first line of defense in a home birth for dystocia or in a midwife-assisted delivery, regardless of where it happens usually, is to get the mom to move and see if she can help, right? What do you, what do you need to do and let her make her move? In a physician-assisted birth, their first move is not to move the mother. The first, first move is to take action because that's how they're trained. And you might have heard of a recent, it was maybe about a year ago that a baby was actually decapitated. And I have also seen this one time in my career in a premature baby. Um, but if a physician pulls on a baby's head, that is a risk. And the physician that did this um, caused the death of the child. And was he trained or she? I think it was a woman. Were they well-trained? I don't know. Uh, did they know how to manage dystocia? I don't know. And you really don't know, right? You don't know how frequently someone has had to handle those complications. What you're doing is you're putting trust in your care provider to help you out if you need it. And that's why I tell people when picking your provider, your first question is, where am I birthing? Because that's going to influence whether or not you pick an OB, a family practitioner, a midwife, a CNM, an L, whatever. And the second question is, what kind of care do I want? Do I want to sit down and spend an hour with my practitioner and get to know them? Um, or do I just want to be in and out? And then the most important question is, do you feel safe with them? Do you feel like you could trust them? And when I met my midwife, uh, who I used with my last two kids, I immediately knew that I could trust her with my life, with my baby's life. I felt a deep sense of really what I would call an energetic connection. And um, this is how I do my practice now, regardless of how I'm attending birth, whether it's as a doula or a, another kind of attendant. I want to work with people who are aligned with me energetically, really on a connected level of we understand each other, we trust each other, we can work together because it's a partnership. Your care and your pregnancy shouldn't be a dictatorship. It is a partnership and your care partner should be deferring to you for decision-making, not telling you what to do. So, Why do they induce, right? Why do they induce? They're inducing simply to avoid a potential complication, even though we know that that is unlikely to really help matters. One thing that I tell people that I think is really valuable to know is that in births outside the hospital that are not being managed in terms of time or speed or any of that, that, where there aren't frequent cervical checks, where we're not watching the clock because now your labor's been going on too long, but we're just letting bodies do what bodies do. I have never transferred someone to the hospital because the baby was too big. It just doesn't happen. Because even if they're big, they're squishy and they squish. They're designed to squish, right? And again, your body's not going to create a baby you can't birth unless you're not well. When I, After I had my large baby, uh, there was a lot of fear 
that I was diabetic and undiagnosed. I had opted not to take the glucose tolerance test because I had never had gestational diabetes and I didn't want it. And you get a lot of false positives in that test anyway. And I knew that. So when I got pregnant with my, with my sixth baby, I opted rather than taking the glucose tolerance test to take my blood sugar. And I took my blood sugar in the morning when I woke and then after I ate breakfast an hour or two to get a fasting and a, what they call postprandial after meal. And my blood sugar levels were always low normal. So I did not have gestational diabetes of any kind. I just make big babies. And my babies can, got bigger and bigger as they went along. They, they got, my first baby was only seven pounds, nine ounces. And they just kind of kept getting larger. So, but my body always managed it. And I... You know, does it change the length of your labor? Maybe. Does it result in some potential malpositioning when you have a big baby if they can't figure out how to fit in the pelvis? Possibly. My last labor was really long. And that was why. He had a really big head and he he kind of kept coming in and out of my pelvis trying to find the right spot. And I could have had a C-section. I went into the hospital and the CNM, the certified nurse midwife there, who was my sort of other care provider, said, we can take you to the OR and you can meet your baby in 15 minutes, or you can be in labor probably eight more hours. And I was eight centimeters dilated and had been eight centimeters dilated for a long time. So there was certainly a temptation, but also I knew that at almost age 40, I didn't want to recover from a C-section and with my last baby. So I said, no, I want to wait. If you think, if you think he can, he's going to figure it out, let's wait. And we waited and guess what? He figured it out. It just took him a little while. It took him a little while. Um, I was grateful for that care because had I been under the care of an obstetrician and I came in and said I was attempting a home birth and I've been eight centimeters for eight hours already and my baby is not coming down and my last baby was, was a dystocia, they would have immediately done a C-section. That would have been the path. And that would not have been the best path because a C-section is never preferable to a vaginal delivery unless there's an emergency right? C-sections increase your risk of a bunch of other things, including problems with fertility in the future, you know, having to fight for a VBAC, the fact that it's a major surgery you're recovering from, all of those things by themselves are enough, not to mention, um, depending on if your water's broken or not and how long you've been in labor, your baby is not being exposed to the vaginal microbiome, which is a really important piece of developing their gut as they grow. And because you get antibiotics, two different broad-spectrum antibiotics, which means they cover everything in a C-section, your baby also gets antibiotics. So they're starting out life with a blank slate for a gut instead of a seeded gut that is ready to recognize friend from foe. And this is one of the reasons why we have such high incidences of food allergies and things, what we call atopic illnesses, particularly here in America. It's probably from the overuse of antibiotics. Actually, I will say it is. Um, there haven't been a ton of studies yet, but I'm pretty confident that you can trace the sharp rise in asthma, eczema, food allergies, and type 2, type two diabetes to the overuse of C-sections and the overuse of antibiotics, those two things combined. So at the end of the day, you're C a C-section, just because labor's taking too long, it's not a reason uh, unless anyone's in danger, right? And I've said this many times with clients where they've been, you know, nine centimeters or nine with an anterior lip or whatever kind of hanging out and not 
progressing for many, many hours and have had the threat of C-section issued. And my response is, as long as the baby looks good and she's okay and wants to keep trying, then we're going to keep trying. And every one of those cases resulted in a vaginal delivery. So it was worth to keep trying, even though sometimes it took as much as three or four hours. And the person would have certainly fallen off what they call Friedman's curve or the labor curve. The, um, the, the other really important thing is that any time a baby is perceived to be large, even if it's not actually large, even if we think it's going to be large, it changes how we behave in the birth. And it increases the number of interventions in general. Um, we tend to get messed with more if someone thinks that our baby might be big, which is why at the end of pregnancy, when they start offering you third trimester ultrasounds, say no. The only reason to do a third trimester ultrasound is to determine placement position of the baby. Is the baby head down or butt down? And measuring the baby's size is not only probably resulting in a highly inaccurate number, but has the potential of creating a lot of anxiety in the birthing person, their partner, and in the physician, and then subsequently in everyone who reads that chart going forward. Anyone in the hospital who might read it, anyone um, you know who might be providing care in the future who might read it. Um, that being said, doctors do seem to want to do end of pregnancy ultrasounds. I'm seeing this as a as a more common practice lately. I've been in birth work for 20 years. It was not something we did routinely 20 years ago. People didn't get ultrasounds at the end of their pregnancy to estimate fetal size. It might be because the machinery has gotten better and people, they believe that <clears throat> the data is more accurate, but I have never in my career seen an ultrasound that matched up with the size of a baby. They are never the same. They are always off. Sometimes they're only a little bit off, but most of the time they're off in the direction of the baby is estimated to be larger than it is, and then everyone is panicked, and then the baby comes out and is actually two pounds smaller than they thought it was going to be. This happened to me with a client a few months ago. She went in at 37 weeks. She was gestational diabetic. They told her at 37 weeks her baby was nine pounds already, and so they insisted on induction at 38 weeks and some days, but at 38 weeks she went in, and they estimated the baby's weight to be seven pounds. And then she was induced at 38 weeks uh, and some days, and the baby was about eight, it was eight and a half pounds-ish or so, which is a perfectly average, normal size first baby. So all of that, the induction, the fear around it, the fact that she was attended by a doctor that wasn't her doctor, who also brought fear in the room, a long labor, induction and labor, all of that could have been avoided. All of that was avoidable. Thankfully, she got a vaginal delivery. They tried to take her to C-section multiple times because she was one of those people that was nine centimeters with a lip for hours and hours and hours. She, was, she had an epidural. She was laying down. She wasn't mobile, right? And I kept saying, just let us keep trying. We're going to get rid of that lip and we're going to push this baby out. We're going to just, it's going to happen. And it did happen. And the physician, for the first time ever in my career, apologized to me and said, I was wrong and you were right. Because every time the doctor came in and looked at me and said, I don't think this kid's going to fit, I said, it's going to fit watch. And I looked her dead in the eye and said, I had an 11-pound baby. Look at me. I'm an average-sized person. There's nothing special about me. I'm not, like, gigantic or anything. I'm just totally average. I mean, I'm chunky, but, like, I'm five foot five inches tall. 
So I have normal hips. It's all nothing special, right? Nothing special. And nothing special. So take a breath. She recognized, though, that she had brought her fear in the room, and she did apologize, um, and she did say out loud to the client that she was sorry that they were wrong, which is not usual because that opens you up to litigation too, right? Well, the doctor admitted they were wrong, so now we could sue them for something else. So what do you do if your doctor starts saying, I suspect your baby's big? I think your baby's big. I think your baby's big. What do you do? Here are some tools. The first thing you do is you say, I don't want an ultrasound. I don't want one. If the physician insists on an ultrasound, find another physician. You do not have to submit to an ultrasound. It's your body. It's your baby. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I don't want to be induced, regardless of the size of my baby. It is not evidence-based, period. If your doctor can produce evidence for you that shows that you will have a better outcome through an induction, and it's trustworthy research, dare them to find it. They won't. They won't find it because it's not there. It doesn't exist. Right? It doesn't exist. So I don't want an ultrasound. I do not want an induction. And I would not, also would not be afraid to say, I, the size of my baby is perfect for my body. And I know that to be true. Um, I had a client once who was in eating disorder recovery, and we didn't talk about size at all through her pregnancy, including the size of her baby. And she was a big, tall woman with a big, tall partner, and they had a big baby. Um, I, I think the baby was like nine pounds. It was a good size baby. But I would have expected her to have a good size baby. If she had had a six pound baby, I would have been like, what's wrong with you? Because she was a big lady. You know, she was like six foot two herself. So my, ba- my body is growing a baby that will fit through it. And what's what's difficult with physicians is that sometimes we don't see these sides of them until we get to the end. Like at the beginning of our pregnancy, we say, I don't want an induction. I don't want any interventions or whatever. And the physician agrees to all of it. And then as you get closer to delivery, as you get closer to your due date, they start to drop their hints about we should do a cervical sweep. We should plan an induction for this day. We should, we should, we should, we should, we should. And at that point, most pregnant women will acquiesce because they're tired of being pregnant. And I was one of them. I had a suspected big baby and was induced for a suspected big baby. And he was nine pounds and came out and he was just fine. So um, there was a basic lack of trust in my body's ability to do the work. And from a higher level perspective, I think this is an important thing to acknowledge because it undermines our intuition and our trust in ourselves. When other people don't believe we're capable or that our bodies can't do something, it undermines and erodes our foundation of trust. And this is why I do birth work. Because the foundation that we lay our birth upon is the foundation we build our parenting upon. So if we come into parenting having had a terrible traumatic birth where our body, you know, did some, didn't do something it was supposed to do, or we had an induction that turned into a C-section or whatever the story turns out to be, we're bringing that into our parenting experience and into our experience as humans as a whole. You ask any pregnant woman or any mother who's delivered a baby naturally or unnat- or, or unnaturally, <laughs> naturally or medicated or not medicated, it doesn't matter. Once you have pushed a baby out of your body, you feel like a superhero. And if you push a baby out of your body 
completely unmedicated and untouched, you feel like you could conquer the world. And you're supposed to. That's the point. That's the whole point. The hormones that are meeting you in labor and after birth are setting you up for success, right? They're reminding you that you're capable. They're reminding you that you're strong. They're really creating a foundation of strength for you to build upon. And this is an under underrepresented perspective. People don't talk about this a lot. We don't talk about the way that our hormones and the way that our births go impact us ongoing forever because birth has the power to change people for good or bad forever. Forever. Ask any woman. She could be a hundred years old. She might not remember anything, but she will remember the birth of her children. She will remember it because it is a life-altering experience. It is a life-changing experience. And you deserve to have the life-changing experience that you want, which hopefully means getting the things you need and getting the respect that you desire without being pushed. And in the event that you are in a situation where you are being pushed and your desires are not being respected, do not be afraid to walk out. Do not be afraid to say, I don't want to be, I'm going to find another care provider. Any, any hospital you walk into, anywhere in America, if you are in labor, will take you in and help you deliver your baby. Anywhere. Probably. There might be little tiny hospitals that wouldn't know what to do, but they, they're not going to turn you away, is what I'm saying. There will always be an, a doctor on call who can catch your baby if your own doctor isn't around, or by golly, nurses really know how to do it too. We've all caught lots of babies when doctors didn't make it. It's super normal. I've caught lots and lots and lots of babies. It's a lot of paperwork, but otherwise, it's very, very normal for nurses to do the catching because birth just happens when it happens. You don't have to have a, you know, eight-year trained medical practitioner at the foot of your bed in order for you to have a baby. All you need really is a safe space and ideally some towels because it is a little messy. Otherwise, you're best left alone. So if you're not getting the care that you want, if you get into a situation where the big baby thing becomes a sticking point in your prenatal care, then don't be afraid to say, I will seek care elsewhere if you continue to push this issue. And seek care elsewhere. Get a second opinion. Get an ultrasound from someone else, for that matter. Uh, you know, the there is no data that shows that the that ultrasounds at that late stage of pregnancy are accurate. There isn't any data. We're making a guess. So for me, it's more harmful to make an incorrect large guess than it is to do nothing at all and just wait. The waiting. And the trust that you have to exercise in those moments in your body is worth the, the it's worth having to do it, right? It's worth the the struggle to have to achieve it. And it doesn't mean you will achieve it beautifully or gracefully. I cried at the end of every one of my pregnancies, and when they went after my due date, as they did, I cried and was upset and said, I wish I was handling this gracefully and loving it and enjoying these last few you know, days with my baby, but I really just don't want to be pregnant anymore. It doesn't have to be a beautiful experience of 
you know, frolicking through the forest in a gauze dress. It can just be, I'm doing this because this is the right thing for my kid and myself, and it might suck while I have to wait for this baby to decide its birthday, but when it's all said and done, I'm going to be able to be really proud of myself for trusting my baby and trusting my body. That's what it really, really comes down to. Physicians lack trust. Physicians don't have the trust that midwives have in, in birth because they see so many problems in birth that they don't realize that when birth is healthy and left alone, it just happens. So they're approaching their care from that place of defensiveness. And that's unfortunate, but it's just part of it's just part of the story. So you have to be the one to advocate for yourself. I hope you found this helpful and happy birthday. The information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event.